comes to reading the Bible, I have a principle that I work by. Uh, actually, it's more about when I teach from the Bible that I have this principle. I believe that everything that is in Scripture is inspired by God, that God has inspired the original authors in their content and context, and the written word is valuable because of that. But not everything is as useful, right? There are certain things as we read Scripture, we might wonder, okay, why is that there, or what is its purpose? And so when I come to teaching Scripture, I usually have that in mind. What is useful as well as uh, everything else that goes with it. There's a big deficiency in that, though. And if I'm not careful, I'll miss it. Is that what I think is useful to me might not actually be the right answer. As in, if I think it's not that useful, actually maybe there's a great intent into why it's there, as everything is inspired, and I could miss out on something very significant if I ignore it. And it comes to various passages in Scripture where I think that's true. In particular, they are called genealogies. Some of you who have read through the Old Testament or have read through the New Testament, you come across lists of names, and you kind of fall asleep for a minute, then all of a sudden you jump ahead five verses. And you wonder, wow, why is that there? Why do I need to know so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so? And it's easy to look at them and go, well, that's not very useful. You know, I want to know about how I should live my life as a follower of Jesus. It doesn't help me to know this person had this child, you know, 2,000 years ago. But when we have that mindset, we actually could miss out on something very significant about what it means to live a life that follows Jesus. And in particular, when it comes to the genealogy of Jesus, this is especially true. Every account of the Gospels starts in a different way. Every account of the gospel starts in a different way, but all of them begin with some sentence at the beginning to show you why it matters, why you should read this gospel. And this morning we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Matthew thought it was so important for us and his original audience to know Jesus' family tree that he put it right at the beginning. The reason for that is if you were a first century person living in Palestine, Israel, and you were of Jewish descent, this would really matter to you. It would be important for you to know who you came from. Because who you came from defined who you are. And so for Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, he's writing to an audience who had this in mind. He's writing to a prominently Jewish audience who he wants to, them to know the significance of Jesus the Messiah. So everything in Matthew's gospel is written with that in mind. Everything that is recorded has the intent and the purpose to help his audience know that he, this Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. And he starts with a genealogy. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to it. If not, the words will be on the screen. Matthew's genealogy starts like this. Well, Matthew's gospel starts like this in verse 1. It says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Jesus is introducing three, well, Matthew's introducing three important characters right away in the first line. It says, this is the genealogy of these three peoples, Jesus, David, Abram. Other translations might say, this is the record of Jesus, David, and Abram. Each of those individuals is incredibly significant for what's about to come about in the entirety of his gospel. You see, each of those individuals is a child of a promise. A promise that some, for some was long expected in Jesus, which we'll get to. And others were promises that they knew of, but maybe had forgotten. So in this story that Matthew's going to tell us, he begins by saying, well, it starts with Abraham. Some of us are familiar with our Old Testament, and some of us maybe not so much. But Abraham is incredibly significant throughout Scripture. We jump to Genesis chapter 12, and God speaks to Abraham, and that what he speaks to him is what is so significant. He gives him a promise. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household, and to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will make you into a great nation. Oh, skip that one. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. God gives Abraham an initial promise saying that through you, through your dynasty, all people are going to be blessed. Not only are you going to be blessed, all people are going to be blessed. And this is the promise that starts the Bible, really. It starts the story of God's people as a unique people who are meant to be following God. And so the promise of Abraham is what this audience would have heard and gone, yes, that's what we're part of. We're waiting for this. We're waiting for us to be this blessing, but most of all, for us to get this blessing. So the line of Jesus starts with this guy. But there's another promise in those three people as well, and that's of David. Some of us are familiar again with our Old Testaments, and we know the story of David. He starts off as a shepherd. He ends up killing Goliath. He ends up being the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Everybody looks to David as like the promise of what they'd hoped for, but doesn't always make the right decision. In 2 Samuel, God gives the prophet Nathan a promise for David. And it says this. It says, The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And jump ahead a few verses. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This was a promise that God gave to David, that David's line would continue, be established forever. Now, if we look at this one line, there's a whole lot there. And it would be easy to gloss that over. What Matthew is pointing out, he's saying that this Jesus, who is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, in Greek would be the Christ, he comes from a line that starts with Abraham, and includes David. 
Now, in the context of his time, this is really significant because the line of David is where the kings of Israel are supposed to come from. But for about 200 years, the kings of Israel were not coming from this line of David. In fact, some of them were not even Israelites. And so the current and previous, for about 200 years, kings of this place that's supposed to be the place of God's promise weren't even followers of this God. And so Matthew is starting it off, writing to his very Jewish audience and saying, you need to listen to this, because I'm going to tell you where all the stories that are going to follow come from. And it's a line of succession that starts with David, I mean, starts with Abraham, continues into David, and culminates in Jesus. Let's keep going. So, says this, and this is where we can easily gloss things over. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother, mother was Tamar. And let's pause at that name. Now, some of us, again, might be really familiar with our Old Testament. Some of us might be a little bit loose on it and maybe not so sure. But this name is important. First off, it's a female name. Typically, in a genealogy, female names were not included at this time. So the significance of drawing female names into this genealogy is, is very severe for his initial audience. And the name he starts with is not a name they're unfamiliar with. Tamar is a victim of injustice. She was promised in Judah's family to have a child. That's part of their way of being. Her first husband doesn't do right in God's eyes and dies. What's typical of that culture is that if a brother has a wife and they've never had children, the next brother would marry that woman to have children with them. That brother, Onan, decides, no, I don't want to do that. And you can read about that in Genesis but in Genesis 38, there's another son that comes up, and Judah's supposed to promise this son to Tamar, but he kind of goes, nah, let's, she's getting old. Let's leave her be. So Tamar, in her cunningness, uh, pretends to be a prostitute and sleeps with Judah and has a baby. This initial audience would hear the story and go, wow, we don't like that story. That's one of those, you know, not safe for work stories that we're trying to ignore. But it's in there. God incorporates a woman, first off, who's typically not incorporated in a genealogy, but a woman who the initial audience would look at and go, we don't like that so much. But let's keep going. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. I listened to this about 20 times this morning just to make sure I got the names right, so I hope I don't mess them up too much. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, there's a name maybe some of us are familiar with, Rahab. Who is Rahab in Scripture? Well, Rahab was a prostitute, a Gentile prostitute, so a non-Jewish person, who finds her way into the story because she hides people who are trying to do what God calls them to do, to protect them. 
This is another person who people would look at and go, well, hey, we're not, we're not into having Gentile people, let alone Gentile female prostitutes, into our genealogy. We don't, those are the names that we black out. But Matthew is incorporating it. And you keep going. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Another woman, three women so far. Now, Ruth, some of us might be familiar, there is an entire book in the Bible based on her story, and an incredibly important story, too, because she was a Moabite. If you are familiar with your Old Testament and Deuteronomy, you are told that Moabites should never approach the people of God. In fact, to the 10th generation, they are to be excluded from the worship of God. And this wonderful woman, Ruth, comes into the story, and you can read her story in in the accounts in the Old Testament. It's a great story. Someone who was demonstrated devotion to her mother-in-law after she herself had lost her husband and her mother-in-law was a widow as well and chose to follow her and ended up finding herself as a part of God's story in an amazing way. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So we get to David. So we look at the line of David, and we've got three women in there, and there's some questionable things about these women for this original audience. This original audience wouldn't be unfamiliar with this genealogy to this point. In fact, they would know it quite well. They would know that these women were in there, and they would know that these women maybe had some questionable parts of their story, and they'd be a little bit uncomfortable with it. Actually, probably a whole lot uncomfortable with it, but they would know it. And then it gets even more questionable. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. She's not named, but her name is Bathsheba. It's significant that Matthew would write not her name, but the point that it was somebody else's wife. Somebody else's wife, who you could easily, again, gloss over if you don't know the story, but essentially, David took advantage of Bathsheba. He forcefully took her. It's not a pleasant story. This king who's considered the greatest king in their history was incredibly sinful. He did something awful. And this story finds itself in this line. And it keeps going. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, who, just as a side note, is actually one of my favorite stories, the stories of Jehoshaphat. I really like his stories that you find in Kings. Jeroham, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Again, we can gloss over this. We could ignore this. It's it's just a bunch of names and places, and we could ignore it. But they are exiled to Babylon. So he's reminding his audience, like, remember the time when things were good with us and God? And remember the time that, you know, as we kept going, we really screwed up? Well, we got to a point where we got kicked out of where we thought we belonged. We are in exile. We are kicked out of where God has asked us to be where God has promised us to be. 
After the exile to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Shealtel. Shealtel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, which is not a very popular name anymore. Maybe it could come back in 2022. The father of Abuhud. Abuhud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elahud. Elahud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mahan. Mahan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. There's another woman. A fifth woman. Now, I'm going to just address something that might be, if you maybe have thought about it, maybe other people have thought about it and said this. Uh, I know other people have thought about it and said this because I've heard this before. Is a genealogy is usually traced through the male heirs. So you think about the father. And whether or not we think that's right, that's not the point. It's just how it was. And so your significance comes from the bloodline of your father. Those of us who are aware of this, we would say that Jesus was born of a virgin. So Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. Yet the lineage is tracing Joseph's line that goes back to David and Abraham. And so what a lot of us would say is say, well, then Jesus isn't really from that line because Mary's not from that line. And that would be a mistake. Because again, it's not understanding the context and the culture that this was written in. Because the context and the culture this was written in, if you are an adopted child, you are part of that line. You assume all the rights and privileges of a natural-born child. We know this from history because we know that Caesar Augustus fell into this category. And he wasn't the only one. If you are part of a lineage, you are part of a lineage. Even if you are not naturally born into it. And so the uniqueness of Jesus' situation is clear here. That he's from this line because God has grafted it together. And so we might look at it and go, well, he's not biological son of Joseph, so this makes no sense. But that's not the way genealogies work. And in fact, it's not really the way that God works. He grafts us into his kingdom people as well. And so Matthew has recorded this list of names. And in this list of names, he has listed off some significant women. And some of these women are significant because they are scandalous. Scandalous like Rahab, who seduced her father-in-law. Scandalous, but not Rahab, sorry. Tamar. Scandalous like Rahab, who was a prostitute. Scandalous like Bathsheba, who was raped. And then Mary, a young girl, in improbable circumstances, pregnant, but a virgin. Chances are that Matthew is tracing this line so that when he gets to Mary, he's telling his audience, look at how God is working. It doesn't seem to make sense, but it's drawing to something. Look at how God is working. You would not think all these people should come together for the line of our, you know, our favorite King David, let alone the Messiah. But God is working in these improbabilities, in these circumstances that don't seem good, and doing something great. 
This genealogy of Jesus finds Jesus at the end of a line of a family tree that is anything but glorious. Some of you, maybe you've, you've done your own ancestry. Or maybe you've just had Christmas dinner and that uncle comes over and you're like, I really wish that wasn't part of our family. I'm sorry if you are that uncle. But we all have stories in our past that we look at and go, wow, that's, that's a blemish on my story. That's not a good thing. That's not what I'm going to tell someone on my first date. Yeah, my grandfather was a Nazi. Yeah, no, you don't, you don't share that. Right? You might have moved way past it, but there's still a blemish on your story. And one of the things that Matthew is doing is he's demonstrating the blemishes on God's story. That God is still working through those blemishes. And that your story, too, doesn't have to be defined by those blemishes. Whether it is your biological story, where you came from, maybe your parents weren't so great. Maybe your grandparents weren't so great. Maybe down the line there were some horrible things that they did, but that doesn't define your story. We all have blemishes. But what Matthew does is he traces the line to the one who heals those blemishes. In Jesus, in the anticipated Messiah, he is going to demonstrate that everything that came to pass, even if it wasn't good, goes somewhere. That everything the people of God have been through through history while sometimes absolutely awful, came to this very moment to bring hope and healing forever. Matthew is going to show you that in your story, Jesus can change the trajectory of what was there's a good chance that there are moments in your day where you have regret. There's a good chance that in your life that throughout it, you will have times where you go, wow, this seems hopeless. I made this horrible mistake. Or I was born into this family. Or whatever it might be. But the hope of Christmas is that whatever those circumstances are, it won't change God's promise. Whatever you have been through, whatever you will go through, God is always working in your life. It's not easy. Sometimes there's great suffering. And sometimes there's lots of regret. But regret and suffering are not going to change the promises of God. A God who is for you. A God who in Jesus says, as we saw maybe in the video, you notice, come to me, you who are heavy burden and need rest. A God who says, I have come to give you life in all of its fullness. You are not strong enough to stop God. Your mistakes are not bad enough to stop God. Christmas reminds us 
that in spite of all that could go wrong, God is so right and so good and so generous to us that he and only he can right our wrongs, can rewrite our story so that we too find ourselves maybe in an obscure family tree that has lots of blemishes, but one that is redeemed in the Jesus that was waited for long ago, who we know today. And the hope of Christmas is that no matter what you've been through, that Jesus doesn't change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who makes promises and never breaks them. That even though we at times make decisions that go against your desire for us, against your best model of life, you still use our story and our life and our experiences to bring us to a place where we are grafted into this family in Jesus that is full of hope if we recognize it. God, we thank you that even in the midst of horrible situations, you are continuously working. And it's not always easy to see. And I would imagine that for, for many of those people that we read through their, their genealogy, that they didn't see you working in the horrible moments that they were in. But as we can look back in hindsight, we can see how your promises never failed. They never stopped. That Holy Spirit, you were always working in people's lives, even when they weren't aware of it, even in their mistakes. And God, we know that that's not an invitation to intentionally make more mistakes or to try and thwart your goodness. But we know that when we do, there is forgiveness and grace and mercy that you are doing so much better than we could do on our own. And we are just invited to be part of it. I pray this Christmas that we embrace the truth that we cannot stop you. We cannot stop your promises. That we are not so powerful in our blemishes and our mistakes and our regrets to stop your love, your mercy, your grace. And I pray we embrace that this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.